Hi, everyone. Welcome to What's Your Why, a new podcast showcasing the greatness of people through their life stories. Each episode will capture insight into the lives of people just like you and I, with the intention to connect, align, and create inspiration for and with our listeners. Stay with us through our What's and Why segment, where we dive into our guest perspective with some thought-provoking questions that just might be right up your alley. I'm your host, Helen Dillon, and thanks for joining us. Now let's get into it. Thanks for joining me again for another amazing episode of What's Your Why. Today, I'd like to start with a question. Things that make you go, hmm, kind of idea. When you hear people described as salt of the earth or earth angels, I'm sure that many of you have people that immediately come to mind. Who are they? People that you're close to that warrant the title and description. Well, I'm over the top excited to introduce you, indirectly of course, to two more, in hopes that you'll gain as much as I did from meeting them. Danny Robertshaw and Ron Danta are quite simply just that, Earth Angels, and I'm so grateful that they were able to give me time in their increasingly busy schedules. For those of you that don't recognize these names, step one, Google. Step two, simply keep listening. Apart from being successful horsemen in the hunter-jumper equestrian community, Danny and Ron set up an animal rescue in 2005, which stemmed from an immediate need to assist people and animals after Hurricane Katrina so tragically decimated New Orleans. They've since been able to secure the rescue as a 501c3 and have subsequently starred alongside their furry friends in an original documentary appropriately named Life in the Doghouse. We were given the opportunity to sit down with these amazing earth angels and discuss their life in the doghouse along with their passion for their extremely successful passion project, aptly named Danny and Ron's Rescue. If I could ask for your time and attention of this episode, I can assure you that my guests will not disappoint, and I hope that you'll find it as easy as I did to welcome them into your hearts and discover what true earth angels can really look like. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We're here with uh, Danny Robertshaw and Ron Danta from Danny and Ron's Rescue and uh, Life in the Doghouse film. If nobody's seen it, it's available on Netflix. And thank you very much for joining us, gentlemen. It's really a pleasure having you here. And thanks for saying yes and agreeing to chat with us about your wonderful, unique rescue and film that you started. Well, thank you for having us. We're excited you asked us. We appreciate you. Absolutely. So I'm interested. I suspect that you both come from animal-loving families. And uh, considering your involvement in the equestrian industry, when do you think your love of animals began? And Ron, I'll start with you. Oh, I guess probably at birth. (laughs) (laughs) You know, both my parents were very big animal lovers. And so I think probably genetically, you know, it transferred down to my sister and I from when I was a tiny, tiny child. You know, I loved cats, dogs, birds, frogs, salamanders, you name it. You know, I had lots of friends that hunted and shot birds and everything like that. And I had, I always felt sorry for them. As you see in the movie Life of the Doghouse. I hated putting the worm on the hook because I felt sorry for the poor worm getting zigzagged through the hook. So I really think it just came to me naturally, you know, when I was a young child. And I think as I got older and when Danny and I got together, I think we kind of felt like we were put on this earth for a mission and for a reason. And so I think that's why we decided to really jump in full force and try to make a difference in a lot of animals' lives and a lot of people's lives. And Jenny, what about you? Has that always been a passion in your life? Has it started from birth as well? Totally from birth. But what's interesting and different from Ron's family, my mom and dad 
My dad was uh, born in 1914, my mom in 1916. And my mother grew up on a farm, and my dad grew up in a city and was with a textile family, and mom was on farm. But when I was very young, I mean, my mom would put me to sleep with stories of life on Beaver River Stock Farm. And my horse farm now is Beaver River Farm, because she helped me buy the farm before she died. But she had the most wonderful stories of, of growing up and, and all of the things that went on in Beaver River Valley. I mean, just from even my Nana, uh, her mother, who is not a real personable lady, but just talking about a cat that had kittens in her drawer. And, you know, and mom would tell me stories constantly. And I didn't know until I was an adult, actually, and looking back on it, how much my dad actually cared for the animals and liked animals. He just had no idea that he did. My involvement really came from my mom. But when I look back at all the animals I put on my father and brought into the home and into my life and into our yard, I can see why it was really hard for him at the time. But he did love them. And yeah. the thing is, the animals loved him, too. So a little uh, contradiction there, but it was a wonderful coincidence. It works out in the end. It did. So tell me when, where, and how did uh, Danny and Ron's rescue begin? I know a little bit. I, I did watch the documentary. And uh, by the way, it's a wonderful film. It really is truly a wonderful film. I'm interested in how the notion of your rescue, actually, how that notion began. I mean, our rescue really began even before we were an official 501c3 nonprofit. Danny and I used to go to shelters and take three or four dogs that were on euthanasia, bring them home, and then try to get some of our horse friends to adopt them. But the official start of it was, you know, when Hurricane Katrina hit, we just kept bringing supplies down and bringing dogs back. And and we were doing that on our own money and not being able to get donations. And so, you know, when we started getting press over us saving so many dogs from Hurricane Katrina, a lawyer named Danielle McCluskey had read some articles about us and she contacted us and she said, you know, you guys are going to go broke if you keep using your retirement fund funding this. You need to become a nonprofit, and I'm willing to do this pro bono for you and then come on board and be your legal counsel. And so we are very blessed to still have Danielle as our legal counsel, and she did all the paperwork to make us a nonprofit so we could get donations so we didn't go belly up <laughs> doing this. So so we're <laughs> very indebted to Danielle McCluskey for what she's done for our rescue, you know, and helping us to be a nonprofit so we can, because we strictly survive on donations. I will say that somewhere or another, I've been quoted, it might have been in the movie, or I really don't know where, but where I said something to the effect that we didn't see ourselves as a rescue, we just saw ourselves as rescuers. That's totally how we thought our situation was. Do you still feel like that still rings true, that you still don't view yourself as a rescue, just as rescuers? I think internally for both of us, we have to feel like we're rescuers rather than a rescue, because we really want to do what's important and what is really needing rescuing. But as an organization and a, a household and a total function that we are now, we're definitely a rescue. We're rescuers at heart. We never thought about being a 501c3 or that we were capable of it. We really thought that you should have a kennel and you should have this big fancy establishment all set up and that's what makes it work. We had no idea that by 
piling them up at our house <laughs> that we could actually qualify. Uh, Danielle McCluskey pointed out, you guys don't have any idea what you're doing and how great it is. Amazing. When Katrina hit, was it an actual thought process or a decision or was it a help now decide later or had you even entertained the idea? Obviously, you entertained the idea of helping animals prior to the storm, but setting up the rescue and doing such a thing of of the magnitude that you have, had you entertained the idea of that prior to the storm? Yeah, I mean, I don't think we ever even went through a thought process. We jumped in with all of ourselves into the Katrina rescue. We just thought we needed to help. We needed to save these dogs. And I guess that's the sad part is we really didn't even plan ahead. We just kind of went into it and had no thought process. And we just leaned on our horse community to try to have them adopt dogs from us. And so at that time, you know, we didn't have contracts. We didn't Google Earth and see if they really have a fenced yard. We didn't do background checks because we were basically adopting them through our horse community, which, you know, we knew and people knew and everything like that. So I don't really think there was much thought process in it. We just jumped in and started doing it. And then all of a sudden we were like, whoa, what have we done? We just never thought of it in any sense as an organization or or something to reach out to America. We just very personally, were trying to do the best we could do. You know, when it came to helping Katrina victims and stuff like that, we reached out to friends and things. It was more about whether they could help us place dogs and, and love dogs and find places for them and that sort of thing. It, it really wasn't about them contributing to, to us being an organization. We had no organization. It was just our hearts. And uh, that's all we had to go with. So what does the uh, nonprofit allow for? Tell me a little bit about that. Yes, I mean... If we stayed just Danny and Ron and not a nonprofit, if we took in any donations, we would have to pay personal income tax on it. That would be income for us personally. Mm-hmm. We, we are one of the few rescues that does not have an adoption fee. And so we strictly rely on donations. You know, we have an elderly program, a veterans program, a surgical program where we help people do surgeries on their dogs that can't afford to do surgeries on them and they would die if we didn't assist in the surgeries. So it allows us to really help in so many more dimensions. Instead of just rescuing dogs, we have really expanded as to how we can help people and help animals in need. Daniel mm-hmm. McClarty was the one that informed us that you're going to go broke and that you really do qualify for a 501c3. And you could actually ask for help. And it would be for the rescue and and not for us. We've never taken a penny from our rescue and never intend to, which is actually a a little bit of point of contention for our board and everything else because they feel we should, but we're not planning on it. We want everything to go to the animals. And so it was kind of awkward for us because something we were just doing out of our heart and not really thinking any other direction became something that needed to be secured. And so we're very grateful for her for that. And uh, here we are. Right. So tell me a bit about your rescue and how it operates. It's very unique with regard to where the animals live and how they come to you and how you adopt them out. Tell me a little bit about how that works. We get a lot of dogs from puppy mills. We get a lot of dogs that have 
been through the court system and surrendered, you know, to us for abuse reasons. And Danny and I figured out very early on in the Katrina thing that dogs that live in a crate, in a kennel, I'm sure everybody's, your listeners have seen dogs in animal shelters that sit in the back of the kennel and they shake and they shiver and they don't want to be touched. Those always get walked by. The dogs that get adopted are the ones that are friendly, that are right up at the cage, wiggling, waggling, saying, take me home. And so those shy dogs in the back of the kennels are the ones that we really lean towards to taking because in our home environment, living in a pack as part of our family, they can get on the beds, they can get on the couches, they can get on the chairs, they can go through the doggy doors, back in through the doggy doors. And by having some secure dogs in the house, it really helps the dogs that are insecure. And so we just believe in a home environment helps them mentally and makes them a lot more secure dogs. And then for our adopters, because they live with us in the house, we can really do great matchmaking as to what those adopters are looking for. Because we've lived with the dogs, we can really stand behind their personalities, what they are and tell the adopters what they are. So we do so many adoptions where the adopters never even meet the dog until they arrive on transport. The shakedown sort of took place where we had about 30 dogs and nice little yards we made for them and a, you know nice dog houses and stuff. And we're still doing our business with the horses. And we have our own dogs at home. But, you know, three and four weeks would go into it and people would say, what about this one? When, do you think he likes children? Do you think... Uh, he gets along with other dogs. Do you think he uh, could do okay at a home and all that? We had no clue. You know, we kept trying to spend a little time with him each day, but we weren't getting anywhere. And we realized then that we had to bring him into the house to find out what they would really accept. And I mean, did they want to be our friends? Did they want to love people? They didn't, hadn't had a chance before. And by doing that, we learned so much about them. And then it made it so much easier to talk to people about this is the personality. I don't know if kids would be the greatest thing. I know other dogs in the house would be a wonderful thing. And so shy, but trying so hard to become a part of our lives. And yet we want them gone before they think they're a part of our life because we want them to be a part of yours. Right, for sure. So has every dog that you've rescued come through your own home directly? Yes. I mean, we, we bring them here. We evaluate them. Some of the very big dogs that are working breeds like uh, Border Collies and, you know, Shepherds and stuff. I mean, we have some Shepherds at the house, but a lot of them that need a lot of room to run, we will take to the horse farm. After we get to know them, a lot of them will live there, but it's not many there. Most of them live in the doghouse so that we can, you know, socialize them and really get to know them. If you want to call it a percentage, go 85 to 90% have been through the house and lived in the house. That's amazing. So how many dogs do you have in your home at any time? Uh, we can have from anywhere from like 65 to 85 in the house at any time. You know, we're very packed right now with COVID. A lot of people can't afford to keep their pets. And so we have had a lot of uh, a lot of abuse cases and a lot of people surrendering because they can no longer afford to keep their pets. It's a very sad and very hard time for animals right now. It has to be heartbreaking all the time. It has to be, well, I guess the good parts are when these uh, animals find a new life and new love and more love. But the beginning must be heartbreaking until you get to that end point. It's heartbreaking and then heartwarming at the same time. Yeah. 
In your movie, you reference that uh, dogs have sort of taken over your house. And it's a, it's a little bit humorous, but on the flip side, it's also not humorous. Um, what effect has that had on your lives, positive or negative? I mean, the positive is, you know, we feel that because the dogs live in our house, that we can really help them through their insecurities, their tragic times, their, you know, the baggage they're wearing. I think for Danny and I, at times, we feel like there's no part of our house, you know, the kitchen, the staff is in, the dogs are all in the kitchen. And, you know, we have a little tiny corner on the island to eat dinner every night. And, you know, there's really no space in the doghouse that is truly ours. Um, Danny jokes all the time. He wants to have one of those that you see on the HGTV, one of those tiny little houses <laughs> out back that we could go run to and eat dinner. That I could and, go and, run to. <laughs> you know, it's a hard thing in rescue. I mean, people say, how do you do it? And it's just because we think they're worth it. It's taxed us truthfully yeah. very greatly at, at certain times because we realize how many weeks or months have gone by when we feel like we really aren't connecting with each other. We're just connecting with everything we have to do. Mm -hmm. But on the other side, the positive is it also makes us address the issue and realize why we're together and why we love each other and uh, what makes our life work. Absolutely. You took my next question right out of my brain. I was about to ask you if you had any advice for anybody and what makes that work. What do you do differently? But you sort of answered it. It seems simple. Communication is key and keep addressing any issues that are at hand. You have to stop and, and address the moments and, you know, the, the moments that you wanted to sh be sharing, but you have it and you reach a point and then you can get nasty mm -hmm. to each other for five minutes or, and whatever, and, uh, begin to say what you have to say and, uh, ends up with more hugs and love than, than we started with. Absolutely. How do you deal with the emotion of knowing that you can't save them all? That has to be so taxing. How does that feel on a regular basis for you? I mean, you've saved so many, but that has to be an emotional process. We have to appreciate the fact that we're doing our best and we save as much as we can possibly do. We never have a closed door about taking something else on and another issue, another problem, another crisis. The door is never closed. It can be inconvenient at times, mm -hmm. but we can't say no to, to something that you know, has come our way and there's no other outlet for them. So there's no no in our in our life as far as that goes. We know there's so much more out there. We've learned not to go seek it if we can help it because we have enough within our own home. No, our hearts always hurt for that that we cannot reach, but there's never a no in us, which is, unfortunately is the both of us throughout our lives in every aspect we do, but we do our best. We get emails, you know, of all the red code, the ones that are going to be euthanized there on their last day. And that's very, very hard to look at their faces, their pictures. But I think it's emotionally for me, it's way harder when we go to shelters and physically see the dogs and know, okay, we have space for five, but these 20, if they're not out of here, are going to be put to sleep. So to me, that is even way more emotional draining on me than looking at the pictures in an email, actually seeing them. And then when they look at you and they're just saying help and you can only help so many, I think that's, I, I don't know, it's, it's, it takes a lot of 
mental strength to keep staying above that. Mm-hmm. Like right now with um, the hurricane going through Louisiana, and we've been there before, and we've done that, and it was torturous. And uh, in our movie, there's many captions of things we did there, but we're ready to go back. But what happens is we bring back X number of dogs, and we only bring back dogs that have been in shelters and haven't been saved yet. We never take dogs that that uh, we hope people will reclaim. Mm-hmm. Know much about them? I mean, it's a a free spirit kind of thing. I mean, we just take and then we find out what we have. And yeah. at that point, then sometimes it's frustrating because it's not like we get to pick the best ice cream on the shelf. Then we don't we, want to. We don't want to, and we don't care what their health issues are. Right. If we sign on to them, they're ours, and we're going to do the very best we can by them physically and mentally. And uh, if we have to live with them the rest of our lives, we do it. It's not their fault they were born. Mm-hmm. It's not their fault that backyard breeders did it or puppy bills or, or that something went tragic in their life. And we have to remember that. Mm-hmm. It's the training of, of people that needs to be addressed much more than the training of dogs. And there are people out there for each situation. You mentioned that in your movie as well, that it's not the shelter's fault if they have to put an animal on the euthanasia list. Simply, it's it's more of a community problem. I agree that that rang true in your movie, that it needs to be addressed. It's a community issue that needs to be addressed. And people need to be stand up. They need to do better for their community and the animals within it. It's not the shelter's fault. They're doing the best that they can. I mean, so many people that have dogs, it's a self-satisfaction thing. And when other things get undone in their lives, then unfortunately, the dogs are the ones that suffer sometimes. It's not their fault, you know, for that either. And we just want people to know that it's a commitment for life. It's a promise. And we just have made our pledge to every dog that comes to us that we're going to be behind you for life. And you never have to worry again if there's any way we can ever help. I mean, county shelters by law in the United States here have to take everything that's brought there. And so that's where it really aggravates me when you get all these people on a soapbox and they're all condemning the shelter because they had to euthanize. And as I said in the movie, you know, if like our our county shelter take in over 5,000 animals a year. And so I asked a lot of rescues, you know, if these were dumped off in your yard, 5,000 animals, would you have to euthanize? People just don't realize the overpopulation. It's not the animal's fault. It's not the shelter's fault. It's human's fault. And the staff at so many of the shelters Mm -hmm. that are city or county run, governmentally, whatever, they get the heat. They get people calling them and cussing them out and saying, you're a kill shelter. You don't care what you do. You don't care about the animal. That's not the case. It's the financial part of the governmental process that puts the pressure on and says, you have to do this. I mean, those people that are working there Mm -hmm. love animals. I mean, they want more than anything for animals to live. But it's the pressure from the financial situation Mm -hmm. and the government that make them have to euthanize animals when in their hearts they would never want to. And I, I just hate the fact that the public will beat them up for it. It's not their decision. When the board comes down, you've had this dog for so many weeks or months. It's not adopted. Get rid of it. Make room for the other ones coming in. Mm-hmm. It's a sad situation. I, I really reach out and feel 
for the workers in those places because those decisions aren't in their hands. If it was in their hands, they'd all live. Yeah. For as much tragedy that you see uh, with regard to abandoned animals, not abandoned animals that people can't help but do, you know, particularly during hurricanes. I know that um, oftentimes they're forced to leave their animals behind. It's not by choice. But in those situations where you see the tragedy of real abandoned animals, is there enough positive that sort of restores your faith in humanity on the same notion? I don't think it's an even balance, unfortunately, (laughs) because we see so much abandonment and abuse and neglect and puppy mills and dogs that live in rabbit cages and never touch the earth, never touch grass. When we get them here, they're scared to death to walk on the grass because they don't know what grass is. So it really, I'll just be very, very honest in me, it builds a lot of anger towards humans that could even think of doing this to these poor animals because they're just victims. And so You know, our adoption process, when they go to their forever homes, that's our joyous time. But I have to be very honest. I mean, I think there's much more harder times than the joyous times. We also realize that we, I mean, every dog we get to put our hands on, we've made their promise. And, you know, to see them in a happy place in the end is what makes it worthwhile for us. But on the other hand, through the traumatic parts and and the suffering parts, especially now since the movie and so forth, we actually get to, just like you having us do a podcast tonight, we get to spread the word to try to educate other people, to be on our team and and to realize you can do something. I mean, individually, I mean, if you just take a Mm -hmm. towel to a rescue, that's at least one little iota of something positive. And the more people we can convince to be productive in this you don't have to take every dog and every rescue and fall in love with it but you can call a shelter and say what can i do or if you're wealthy enough you can send a little financial support or you can get on the bandwagon you can get on the telephone and email people and say let's think about this we need to help this place and we need to help these dogs in this situation and so every little thing we can do to promote that just human interest for for animals in general, that's what is the positive for us. We can't create Rome, but we can put brick down at least to start with. So then what's what's the best thing that people can do to help the best thing they can do, small or large? I mean, the big thing is to spread the word, you know, the importance of spay-neuter. Spay-neuter is the answer to overpopulation. But, you know, like Danny said, they can help in so many ways. If you have 15 minutes on a Saturday, go down to your local shelter or rescue and offer to bathe a dog, walk a dog, go sit and talk to him, give him some, you know, affection. If you like to sing, go play your guitar and let him, you know, sit in front of their kennel. There's just so many ways you can help. If you can't adopt another pet, you know, that's fine. But try to go reach out and, you know, help some other rescues or shelters And then the other big thing is please do not buy from pet stores. Good breeders, and Danny and I have no problem with really good breeders, but good breeders never sell their dogs to puppy stores because they want to know you have to sign, you know, your life away from a good breeder to get one of their dogs. 
And, you know, these all are puppy mill dogs. And the only way we can put puppy mills out of business is to stop buying dogs in pet stores. So I know that your rescue's motto is uh, a simple concept. It's spay, neuter, adopt, love. Do you think there's been an effective change that embraces your motto in recent history? We think so. (laughs) Uh, From feedback, uh, we definitely think so. And uh, through different programs and uh, different things. And Kim Koloff, who is a lovely lady that has run the lip sync contest in Florida every year for children. It's the only event that's all about kids and love of animals. And Mm -hmm. her goal is teaching, give back. And uh, the children just climb on it like nobody's business. But they're all learning. And they get up on the stage and they tell people about spaying and neutering. They tell people about each two dogs that can create how many dogs in less than a year or more than a year in cats. And, and uh, you know, it's an educational thing for so many young people. And that's who we're trying to reach because the people our age are already too old. <laughs> Not really, but I'm just kidding. But, but the next generation down, a lot of them never really had to face these consequences and these concepts. So we get the young kids to start teaching their parents, actually, to um, start caring and start thinking. If they give that back to their mm-hmm. own children in the future, it's a win for us and a win for animal kind. It's interesting. You can always provoke a change generationally. I mean, we know our mission's working, especially from the movie. Like we got an email from a family. They had three children, never owned a dog. They had promised the kids on Saturday to go to a puppy store and buy a puppy for their first dog. Thank God they watched our movie on Thursday night. And after watching the movie, the youngest child, they wrote us an email, the youngest child <coughs> at eight years old looked at mom and dad and said, we can't go Saturday and buy a puppy. We have to go adopt one. So they went to Broward County Shelter and they adopted their first dog. Amazing. Congratulations. Well, you thank know, you. That's what it's all about. It is. And, uh, I mean, we love puppies. We try not to have them if we can help it. Unfortunately, we always have them. But the reason is because, first of all, I mean, there are a lot of work. There are a lot of training. They cost a lot to, to bring along. But so many people adopt puppies and aren't aware of all the details and all the expenses and all the problematic things. I mean, puppies are puppies for two years, most of them. And families that think, oh, this is a great Christmas present. Find out this is chewing my shoes. It's eating the couch. It's peed on the rugs and we don't need it. And the kids are, have lost a little interest because they get back to softball and baseball and, and seasonal things. And the, you know, these wonderful gifts that last for six weeks are put on the wayside and abandoned, even in their own homes and until they just abandon them to a shelter or however it happens. And it's not that we're against puppies, but people adopt those. We really want people to think about taking wonderful beings that deserve so much that have already been through those trials and and tribulations. And not that rescues are always simple, because they're not. They're rescues. But so many of them are so much further along than your puppy is going to be. And we really want to teach and keep trying to teach people to evaluate these situations and also evaluate is this breed good for me? Is this the right dog for us? You shouldn't get a working dog, mm-hmm. an Australian Shepherd or a Pointer or a Beagle. And 
you know, they're not household pet dogs. They want to work. They want to, they want to have a job to do. And just because you think that's the cutest thing mm-hmm. you've seen doesn't make it right for your family. So we really work hard on trying to educate people into mm-hmm. researching what it is they really want. For sure. So tell me about your ultimate goals for the rescue. Have they changed since life in the doghouse? Yes, our goals have changed a lot. We've been very fortunate. We hired a couple that do nonprofit counseling and they help you structure your nonprofit to where you want to be in two years and five years and 10 years, you know, when we're gone. And they have been so instrumental in allowing us to project where we want our rescue to be because of life in the doghouse, because of Netflix. You know, it's been seen over 3 million times in 58 countries. It was on five airlines, on cruise ship lines. It's really put us into a different dimension to where Danny and I have been able to start an elderly program, a veterans program, you know, a surgical program. We started with our local shelter here, starting a free spay neuter clinic, you know, assisting on people getting free spay neuter for their pets. So um, we've been very fortunate to plan that our rescue can go on when Danny and I are no longer here, and hopefully our legacy will continue on. I know your um, viewers and listeners find it hard to believe that we're not 30 years old, but we find ourselves at this point in our lives, we can't do this forever. And we really don't have heirs that really want to step into a, a house with 80 dogs to feed every morning and get to the vets and follow the medications and find the homes. And so, you know, it's a little difficult at that point. But we certainly haven't done all of this to have it drop by the wayside when we're gone. And so this wonderful couple has been helping us, has been guiding us so that we can leave a, we're not worried about having a legacy of our own, but we're, we're worried about making sure that there are projects going on for the duration for years and years after we're gone that are, are positive for helping different situations. And, uh, you know, whether it's veterans or handicapped, we really want to keep sharing in, in that and to help children come along and learn about this and get it in the schools and get education out and make a big difference in the end. We don't have to be doing it, mm-hmm. but we want the message to continue. Right. Yeah. So then that sort of leads me to my wrap up question, which is what inspires you in your day to day life? And what's one word of advice for people that you would offer? I one guess word. what? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I guess what inspires me. <laughs> one word. Oh, in one word. Heaven. <laughs> Here. You can do a sentence. I'll, I'll tell you something that was so satisfying to me. I judged the Royal Winter Fair a few years ago in Canada. That's why I'm bringing that up. And I think I must have had, you know, people who had adopted from us in Canada, 15 dogs come to visit me at the Royal Winter Fair while I was visiting. If that's not exciting, positive, and satisfying, I mean, you ask why we could continue to have people that delighted and excited just to have their dog come say hello to me. You can't get it better than that. I mean, it's a thrill. And realizing that's, you know, just the handful that are in Canada. So the satisfaction we receive from all over the country and so many places when people say, Oh, here's a picture. I want you to see this. We love this. And thank you so much. That makes our world. And it makes us go through all the hardship and all the tough parts. And it makes us realize we really are doing something right. Even when in the dregs of doubt and depression, 
uh, this is so difficult and, and how are we going to do this? That kind of mm-hmm. positivity brings us back out of that shallow shell that we get in and, uh, and, you know, kicks us in the butt and says, go on with it. I guess for me, we're very fortunate. We have a very good friend, Gloria Gaynor, which I'm sure a lot of people remember, I Will Survive, the song. And she won a Grammy this year for her gospel album. But anyway, Gloria is a very big supporter of our rescue and a very dear friend of Danny's and mine. And so I guess my short little, a few more, few more than one word would be, I will survive. I think, you know, these dogs have to have that much drive and we have to have that much drive to know that we will survive and we can make them survive. I was going to say, we sort of need to change it a little bit to you will survive and we're talking to our dogs. That's true. So how many dogs have you rescued to date? We have rescued over 12,000 now and, and the odometer keeps turning. So thank you to all of our supporters and our adopters and donors that we can keep this rolling. But we've really, even through COVID, we have been fortunate enough to still keep the adoptions just rolling along. So we want to really thank everybody for that. Absolutely. Congratulations. That's a staggering number. It's a staggering number that even needs to be rescued. But uh, I'm thankful that you found the time, the energy and the will to do that to help so many animals. It's amazing. Thank you. Absolutely amazing. Right now with the hurricane going through Louisiana again, Ron already contacted mm-hmm. some of the rescues that uh, always suffer and some of the poorer ones in the rural areas that, you know, that they're not ASPCA, they're not Humane Society rescues, they're not, you know, big famous places. And those are the people we reached out to before. And uh, he's already reached out to them and let them know, you know, when the waters settle and the cell phones work again, to please let us know what they need. And uh, we've got two, whatever we call them, our bands, ready to go. Mm-hmm. Supplies and our friends and businesses stock things with uh, every kind of medicine and every kind of treatment and, you know, beds and blankets and you name it. And we're all set to go help them. Anyone that wants to participate, go. please let us know because it's uh, through our communities that we're able to do this. Very good. So for those of our listeners that haven't seen the movie, please do Life in the Doghouse. Uh, they can log on to the website. Is that right? www.lifeinthedoghousemovie.com and uh, donate and download and watch and learn and listen and do all the right things. So it's successful and it's wonderful and it's a, it's a great watch. Please do it. And now we've come to what some would call the very best part of the show, our segment appropriately named What's and Why's. It's where we get to ask our guests some questions that inquiring minds want to know. So without further ado, I bring you the what's and why's for your listening pleasure. Who do you look up to and why? I guess who I really have looked up to in my life is Jane Goodall, you know, for what she did with all the chimpanzees. And I just admire her greatly for her dedication and really making a difference in the world. So I, I, I have high, high respect for Jane Goodall. So then, Danny, what's something that brings you joy and why? I think what brings me the most joy is uh, we do so much with horses as well and other animals, too. Seeing them come from a a complete place of uh, denial of wanting to be in the world and uh, seeing the eyes of those that feel like they have no hope and seeing them progress to where they're just happy children, they're happy whatever they are, bringing them out of their shell. And uh, 
knowing that we've given them confidence and we've given them protection and that we can find the right place for them to be happy forever. Ron, when you look back through your life, what decision brings you the most happiness and why? I think actually being able to establish this rescue and make a difference in 12,000 dogs' lives and 12,000 people's lives, to me, that's kind of what makes us keep going forward. I'm very proud that the youth of today, so we have so many kid followers, and they really are getting it, and they really are spreading our mission. So that just makes me so warm inside, knowing that the young people are really getting the importance of our mission. Danny, what's something that you feel people get wrong about you, and why? <laughs> this is a wonderful question. I think most people really think I'm really sweet, and really nice, and... uh <laughs> I want to make sure they know I'm just as human as everyone else and can be just as big of a butt as the rest of the world. <laughs> the depression, I go into happiness, I go into moods, but I'm human in every uh, every aspect. I just don't want anyone to ever feel ashamed about being who they are. And, and it's uh, I just love the fact that so many people think I'm very nice. <laughs> <laughs> So my last question, I'm going to ask it to you both. Who would you like to hear on What's Your Why as a guest next and why? I'll, I'll tell you a person that I think would be fascinating is Rita Mae Brown. She's been an author mm-hmm. many years of, of so many books and and uh, written so many um, novels through the, you know, that are seen through the dog's eyes and the cat's eyes and through the hunt country and so many things. They're not every. They're not all the deepest books in the world. I mean, in that sense, but they're great reads. So educational about hunting and animals, and I think it's fascinating to see through her animals' eyes and and how she sees the animals protecting their humans. As I said, it, it, it's easy reads, but they're fun reads. And I just think that she's witnessed a lot and believed or not, and a lot and been part of a lot. I'd just love to hear her candid conversation with whoever asked her the question. She sounds interesting. Ron, what about you? I think I would love to have you have Betty White on. I think Betty's an amazing actress, but she is such an amazing animal activist. She's made such a big difference in this world for animals' lives and for animal welfare. And so I think it'd be very interesting to hear Betty's thought process about animals and their meaning in this world. And I'd like to see her hair move. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they are both wonderful suggestions. I'm going to have my people uh, reach out to their people and maybe we can cue that all up next. But uh, gentlemen, I really appreciate your time, effort and energy. I know I said it before, but um, it really is a pleasure meeting you. And thank you for everything that you're doing in life for the animals, for the people, for everybody involved. It uh, it really is quite emotional and uplifting all at the same time. I personally thank you, Heather. She's here. You can't hear her, but she's in the background. Thank you. Thank you very much for giving us your energy today. Thank you for fun questions to answer. Thank you, you know, for having us and all of your listeners. I'd love them to think that this tough time, because this has been a tough year for everyone throughout the world, I want everybody to think about hope and kindness. And so thank you for having us. Absolutely. So I bet you're wondering how you can help. Well, listen up, because I have some news for you. 
What's Your Why has created an amazing support campaign to assist and contribute to some great causes. Danny and Ron's Rescue is the very first recipient of this campaign, but we're going to need your help. Have you heard of pledge threads yet? No? Let me tell you more. Pledge threads are a unique way to help us help you help others. They're collectible unisex bracelets that can be worn to show your support of the cause. Adjustable, stackable, and water-resistant, they're currently available in two custom colors and sport a branded disc to show your love for What's Your Why too. They look great as singles, but even better stacked up, and I have no doubt that you'll feel wonderful wearing them, knowing that you've helped, in this case, save a life. With each pledge thread purchase, 100% of the proceeds will be contributed directly to Danny and Ron's rescue with the hope that all of us can be a part of their voice and their message. Spay, neuter, adopt, love. It's simple, right? Visit whatsyourwhy.ca to get your own pledge threads and help spread love and support for this amazing rescue. I'd like to thank everyone for joining us for this episode of What's Your Why, our listeners, guests, and our sponsors too. It's our hope that you enjoyed your time with us and possibly gained some new perspective as well. It's said that we can learn something new every day if we just listen, and that knowledge has a beginning, but no end. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, be safe, be well, and remember, always leave people better than you found them. A Twisted Spur Media Production.